0: Chapter 19 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a Leverbox recording. All Leverbox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit Leverbox.org While staying at our camp on the Bighorn, A messenger arrived with the intelligence that Thomas Fitzpatrick was back upon the mountain, and that he wished me to visit him without loss of time. My affairs were in such a position that I could not possibly leave, but I sent my father and two of my best warriors to escort him into the village. The next morning, they returned with Fitzpatrick and party to the number of thirty-five men and over two hundred horses. They encamped a short distance out. I visited the camp and was received with a cordial welcome. I was introduced to a Captain Stewart, an English officer who had figured conspicuously as I was informed under the Iron Duke and was now traveling the far west in pursuit of adventure. Also to a Dr. Harrison, a son of the hero of Tippecanoe, and to a Mr. Brotherton, with several other gentlemen, who were all taking a pleasure excursion. While sitting in their quarters, I observed some of the crows looking very wistfully at the horses belonging to our new friends. Knowing that the most incorruptible of Indians have a moral weakness for horses, I ordered some of my faithful dog soldiers to watch them. I then invited the gentlemen to the village, which invitation they readily accepted. The visitors left at an early hour, but Fitzpatrick remained to talk matters over until quite late in the evening. I offered him a bed in my lodge, but he preferred sleeping in his own quarters. Shortly after his arrival, Fitzpatrick incidentally mentioned that the Cheyennes had killed an entire party of crows but he omitted all mention of the part his men had taken in the massacre, and that one of his men had been wounded in the affair. He had also a horse that had belonged to one of the fallen heroes, purchased by him of the Cheyennes. Had he acquainted me with this circumstance when he first saw me, the very unpleasant sequel that I am about to relate would have been avoided. One of the Crow Braves was son to a member of the party massacred, and he recognized his late father's horse. This discovery had occasioned the scrutiny which I had remarked earlier in the evening, but the cause of which I was in utter ignorance. On the retiring of Fitzpatrick, I lay down for the night. I had not fallen asleep when the murdered brave son entered my lodge and addressed me. Mettison Gaff, what must we do with these white men? What must we do with them? repeated I, not apprehending his meaning. Yes, I say so. Why? Take them into your lodges and feast them, and give them beds to sleep on, if they wish it. No, no, that is not what I mean, he said. You know these are the white men who killed my father they have his horse here with them and a wounded man wounded in their fight with the crows he then left me to go as i supposed to his lodge and i thought no more of the matter i soon fell asleep and woke no more till morning on awakening i heard a great rush or trampling of horses and springing out of bed I inquired of a squaw what was the matter in the village. "'Why, don't you know the whites are all dead?' she made reply. "'The whites are all dead?' repeated I, thunderstruck. I ran out and ordered my war horse to be got ready in a moment. I next ran to the lodge where Winter slept and found it filled with crows. I asked what all this uproar meant. I don't know, said he. I have wished to go to your lodge to see you, but they would not let me leave. They have been clamoring about Thomas. Thomas, Thomas, all night. At this moment, Fitzpatrick rode up, with an Indian behind him. Fitz, said I, what in the name of God does all this mean? Where are your men? They are all dead, I expect, by this time, said he blankly, and I presume you have sent for me to murder me at your own discretion. When did you leave them? Were they alive when you left them? They were going down the river, and a thousand Indians in hot pursuit after them, he said. Go over to my father's lodge, I said to him, and stay till I return. I then mounted my war horse being well armed and addressed my father i am mad i said i am going to die he gave the war-hoop so loud that my ears fairly tangled as a signal for my relatives to follow me they gathered round go said he and die with the medicine calf on i dashed in mad career for six or seven miles along the bank of the river, until I came in sight of the men. I seemed to have traveled the space in the same number of minutes, for the horse flew with lightning speed upon his errand. He dropped dead beneath me, in his prodigious exertions he had burst a blood vessel. I ran forward on foot, shouting to Fitzpatrick's men, Run to me! Run to me quickly! They heard me and hesitated at my summons. At length one started, and the others followed, running at their utmost speed toward me. A hill rose on each side of the river, closing together and arching over the stream at a short distance in advance of the party when I arrested their steps. In this pass, the crows had taken their position, intending to massacre the party, as they attempted to force their passage. As they reached me, I serried them around me, the crows charging from the hills upon us at the same time. I now saw my band of relatives and friends approaching us from the village. As the exasperated Indians came surging on toward us, I advanced toward them and ordered them to desist. They arrested their course. What do you want? they asked. Do you wish those whites to live? After you have killed me, I said, you can march over my dead body and kill them, but not before. They then wheeled and fell in with my party of relatives, who were fast arriving and encircling the whites. I then requested each man to mount horse behind my relatives and return with us to the village. All did so except Stuart. I requested him also to mount. No, said he, I will get on behind no damn rascal, and any man that will live with such wretches is a damned rascal. I thank you for your compliment, I returned, but I have no time to attend to it here. Captain Stuart said Charles A. Warfield, afterward, Colonel in the United States Army. That's very unbecoming language to use at such a time. Come, come, boys, interposed Dr. Harrison. Let us not be bandying words here. We will return with them, whether for better or for worse. After I had mounted the party, I borrowed a horse of one of my warriors and led them back to the village. For temporary safety, I deposited the party in my father's lodge. Fitzpatrick inquired of me. Jim, what in the name of God are you going to do with us? I don't know yet, I said, but I will do the best possible for you. I then called the dog soldiers to me and commanded them, together with the little wolves, to surround the village and not suffer a single person to go out they all repaired to their stations. I next took fifty faithful men and made a thorough search throughout the village, beginning at the extreme row of lodges. By this means I recovered all the goods, once in the possession of Fitzpatrick in good condition, except his scarlet and blue claws, which had been torn up for blankets and wearing apparel, but still not much injured for the Indian trade. I also recovered all his horses, with the exception of five, which had been taken to Bear's Tooth's camp. I had the goods well secured and a strong guard of my relatives placed over them. The reader may perhaps inquire what restrained the infuriated crows from molesting the rescued party on their way to the village. Simply this. When an Indian has another one mounted behind him, The supposition is that he has taken him prisoner and is conducting him to headquarters. While thus placed, the Indian having him in charge is responsible with his life for his security. If he fails to protect him, himself and all his kindred are disgraced. An outrage upon the prisoner is construed into pusillanimity on the part of the custodian. Prisoners are also safe while in custody in the village. Their inviolability is then transferred to the responsibility of the chief. This is Indian morals. I was informed subsequently that the Englishman, as soon as he approached me, cocked his gun, intending to shoot me. It was well for him, as well as his party, that he altered his mind, for. If he had harmed me, there would not have been a piece of him left the size of a fivepenny bit. I was doing all that lay in my power to save the lives of the party from a parcel of ferocious and exasperated savages. His life depended by the slightest thread over the yawning abyss of death. The slightest misadventure would have proved fatal. At that moment he insulted me in the grossest manner. The language that he addressed to me extorted a look of contempt from me, but I had not time for anger. I was suspected of complicity with the Indians, or, rather, of having instigated the fiendish plot. No man of common sense could entertain such a suspicion when he sees the part I took in the affair. Had I conspired the tragedy, I had but to rest in my bed until the deed was consummated. Every man would have been killed, and no one but the conspirators have known their fate. To be sure, I was in the service of the American Fur Company, and Fitzpatrick was trading upon his own account. But that could afford no motive to conspire his death. I had not the faintest objection to his selling everything he had to the crows, but they had nothing to buy with. They had disposed of all their exchangeable commodities but a short time since at the fort. Further, I was personally acquainted with Fitzpatrick, with whom I never had an ill word, and some of his party stood high in my regard. Doctor Harrison. If only for his noble father's sake, I would have defended at the risk of my own life. They were all bound to me with the ties of hospitality, and I have yet to hear of any action committed by me that would warrant the assumption of such deep perfidy. I have been informed that Captain Stewart offered $1,000 to a certain individual to take my life. I can hardly think the charge is true, for the individual thus said to be bribed has had many opportunities of earning his reward, and still I am alive. After the goods were secured and the horses brought up, it was discovered that Captain Stewart's horse, a fine iron gray, was missing. It was traced to the possession of High Bull, a very bad Indian. And I was informed that he had declared he would kill the first man that should come after him. Stuart valued his horse highly, as well he might, for he was a noble animal. He was, therefore, very anxious to obtain him. Fitzpatrick had acquainted Stuart that I was the only person in the nation that could procure the horse's restitution. Accordingly, he visited me and said, Mr. Beckworth, he mistered me that time, can you get my horse for me?" I replied, Captain Stewart, I am a poor man in the service of the American Fur Company, to sell their goods and receive the peltry of these Indians. The Indian who has your horse is my best customer. He has a great many relatives, and a host of friends whose trade i shall surely lose if i attempt to take the horse from him should the agent hear of it i should be discharged at once and of course lose my salary well said he if the company discharge you for that i pledge you my word that i will give you six thousand dollars a year for ten years Captain Stewart is a man of his word, and able to perform all he promises, said Fitzpatrick. Well, replied I, I will see what I can do. I then dispatched an Indian boy to Highpool, with the message that I wanted the gray horse he had in his possession. The boy delivered his message, and the Indian retorted with an uh, which startled the boy almost out of his skin, and he came bounding back again, saying the Indian was mad. In a short time, High Bull came riding his horse, and said, Medicine Calf, did you send for this horse? I did. Well, here he is. Take him back, I said, and keep him safe until I send for him. Stuart was wonder-stricken at this proceeding, as our discourse was unintelligible to him. If I could get my hand on that horse's neck, he said, the whole village should not get him away from me. I was annoyed at this braggadocio, and was glad the Indians did not understand him. Fitzpatrick requested Captain Stewart to remain quiet, saying, Beckworth has passed his word to you that you shall have your horse. He will be forthcoming when you want him. The next morning, they prepared to leave the village. The horses were all packed and everything in readiness. Am I to have my horse? said Captain Stewart. He will be here in a moment, sir, said I. High then rode the horse up to the party and dismounted, giving me the reins. Now, sir, you can mount your horse, said I, delivering him into his owner's possession. He mounted and the party started. I took 150 of my choice dog soldiers and escorted them a distance of 15 miles. Before leaving them, I cautioned Fitzpatrick to keep on his journey for three days without stopping to encamp. I told him that the Indians were exasperated and the two villages were together, and it was not in my power to keep them from following them. I was apprehensive they would dog them a considerable distance, but that a three days journey would place them in safety. Instead of following my advice, he encamped the following afternoon. Within an hour after his delay, almost all his horses were taken by the Indians, not leaving him enough to pack his goods. I afterward learned that Stuart saved his gray horse. I saw the crows had made free with my friend's horses, for I saw several of them about the village subsequently. However, I was satisfied I had done my duty. I could not have done more to my own father or brother. Still, my life was sought after, and my character basely assailed. The fate of the crow warriors I will mention episodically here, as I gathered it from Fitzpatrick and afterward from the Cheyennes the party had encamped between two villages having the cheyennes on one side and the sioux on the other they were in utter ignorance of their dangerous proximity being quickly discovered by one of the enemy he returned and alarmed his village and dispatched a messenger to the neighboring village and in a few moments our small band was surrounded by a force of fifty times their number their position was a strong one being chosen in a deep hollow or gully they received the assault with unflinching intrepidity and fought until they were all exterminated except their chief they killing thirty-four of their foes the chief seemed to wear a charmed life neither lead nor arrows could harm him he advanced from his position and tantalized his foes He invited them to come and kill him, saying that the scalps of his enemies made his lodge dark, and that he had ridden their horses till he was tired of riding. They were filled with admiration of his daring. They told him he was too great a brave to be killed, that he might go and they would not hurt him. No, said he, pointing to his dead companions. You have killed all my warriors. They have gone to the land of the Great Spirit. Now kill me, so that I may go with them. I am the little gray bull. Come and kill me. I ask not to live. My heart disdains your offers of mercy. My brothers and friends will avenge my death. He would frequently advance toward his swarming enemies. As he approached, they retired. He then returned toward his dead companions and again defied them to come and kill him. He was eventually shot down, probably by a bullet fired by one of Fitzpatrick's men, who, being encamped with the Cheyennes, had joined them for the sport of shooting Indians. There were two small boys in the party of crows, who went as moccasin carriers. They were taken prisoners and placed behind two warriors to be conveyed to the village. While on the way thither, each drew his knife and plunged it into the body of his custodian, each killing his man. The little fellows were cut to pieces in an instant, which was their own choice, rather than to be captive to the enemy. When I returned from escorting Fitzpatrick, I informed the Crows of the fate of their party, but I withheld all mention of the participation of the whites. Thereupon ensued another dreadful time of mourning. When I parted from Fitzpatrick and party, they all appeared very grateful for their deliverance, and if they had not lost their horses when they encamped, I presume they never would have entertained other but friendly feelings toward me. Shortly after this occurrence, we held a grand council relative to certain national affairs. I then again proceeded, taking Winters and four warriors with me. When we had approached within a mile of the fort, I happening to be considerably in advance of the party, in ascending a small hill, when near the summit, I peered carefully over and discovered a party of blackfeet not more than three hundred yards distant sitting by the roadside smoking their pipes i drew back my head for i saw one indian coming directly upon me and motioned my men to a ravine close by then dismounting i crept back to the brow of the hill and lay down flat until the indian's head came within sight I sprang instantly to my feet and shot him dead. In less than a minute I had his scalp, ran back, and mounted my horse. Then, riding to the summit of the hill, I displayed the scalp to the Indians, who were advancing at their topmost speed. As soon as they saw me, they turned and fled, thinking, no doubt, that I had a strong force lying in wait. I rode on and overtook my party, and we reached the fort without molestation or pursuit. About two hours after, the Indians presented themselves before the fort, and challenged us to come out and fight. We hoisted the scalp I had just taken in answer to the invitation. I consider we may thank my acquired habit of caution for our escape, for, had the Indian surprised us instead of my surprising him, it is more than probable that every one of us would have been killed. We were detained at the fort for the space of eight days on account of the numbers of the blackfeet prowling about. They finally left, and as soon as we were satisfied that the way was clear, we loaded ten pack-horses with goods, and Winters and myself taking two men each returned to the Crow village. The villages had separated during our absence. Longhair and his village haven't taken one direction, and mine haven't taken another. Winters took Longhair's trail with the goods. I followed my village through the Bad Pass and overtook it at Black Panther Creek. I then went on to Wind River, trapping and hunting very successfully all the way the journey occupying about a month. We went into winter quarters under Wind River Mountain, at the mouth of Popo Anche, Long Grass Creek. Here, after gathering a sufficient quantity of buffalo and elk horns, we supplied ourselves with a large outfit of fine new bows. The horns are thrown into hot springs, which abound in that region where they are kept until they are perfectly malleable. They are then taken out and straightened, and cut into strips of suitable width. It takes two buffalo horns to make a bow of sufficient length. They are pierced in the center and riveted. Then they are bound strongly at the splice with sinew. Bows made of this material are equaled by none other except those made from the horn of the mountain sheep. While we were encamped here, numerous small parties of crows went to war without leave, and in almost every instance were defeated. On some excursions, they were entirely destroyed. One party, consisting of thirty-nine warriors, led by the Constant Bird, a great war chief, went to the Blackfoot country, and every one of them was killed. They had killed and scalped one of the enemy, whom they met alone, And again journeyed on, when they came suddenly upon a whole village of blackfeet, and were themselves instantly discovered. To save themselves, they resorted to an ingenious device, which certainly offered fair to save them. On being discovered, instead of retreating, they kept on and entered the enemy's village, pretending they came with authority to conclude a peace. The Indians, Putting faith in their mission, concluded peace accordingly. While thus engaged proposing terms and smoking cozily, one of the Blackfoot squaws stole a sack belonging to them. After the departure of the crows, the sack was examined, and among its contents was found the identical scalp they had taken a short time previously. Raising the war whoop, the Blackfeet assembled in great numbers and making immediate pursuit after the crows, they overtook them and massacred every one. This intelligence was brought by express from Fort Maria, the Blackfoot trading post, to Fort Cass, the crow trading post. On receipt of this intelligence, there was another general scene of mourning and vowing vengeance. I used all the arguments that I could frame to prevent these mischievous guerrilla expeditions, but they would steal off in the night in spite of my entreaties or my denunciations, and I did not like to resort to punishments. Several of the high functionaries inquired of me to what cause I attributed such repeated disasters. I answered as follows warriors the causes are clear enough my medicine tells me the causes firstly you robbed my white friends stealing their horses away and even attempting to take their lives when they were under my protection and when you knew it grieved my heart to have wrong done to them a second cause you are continually acting contrary to the wishes of a -a Rappawash who went to the spirit land on account of your disobedience. I have also expressed the same wishes to you, telling you to apply yourselves to collecting skins in order to have the wherewith to purchase the things that you need. These my orders are openly disobeyed, and the great spirit is very angry with the nation for their thieving and disregard of the orders of their head chief. They then inquired what they should do to appease the wrath of the great spirit. I answered again, Warriors, to appease the just anger of the great spirit, you must discontinue your war parties and remain peaceably at home for one moon. You can then prepare a great sacrifice and do penance for that time and let the Great Spirit see that you really repent the evil you have committed. By so acting, you may recover the favor which the Great Spirit has evidently withdrawn from you. By continuing in your obstinate ways, you will assuredly be rubbed out as a nation." The sacrifices that they offer on such occasions are curious. One sacrifice is made by shaving the manes and tails of some of their best war horses and painting on their bodies a rude delineation of the sun. They then turn them out but never drive them away, and if they follow the other horses it is a sure sign that the Great Spirit is following them also. I had become so sickened with their constant mourning, which was kept up through the whole village day and night that I determined to take a small party and see if I could not change the face of affairs. Accordingly, I raised fifty warriors and started for the Cheyenne village, near the site of the present Fort Laramie. The first night we encamped on the Sweetwater River. The morning ensuing was clear and cold, and we started across a plain twenty miles wide, with neither trees nor bushes in the whole distance. Across this plain was a mountain, which I wished to reach that night in order to provide ourselves with firewood and have a warm camp. When we had traversed this desert about midway, a storm came on, which is called by the mountaineers a poudori. These storms have proved fatal to great numbers of trappers and Indians in and about the Rocky Mountains. They are composed of a violent descent of snow hail and rain, attended with high and piercing wind, and frequently last three or four days. The storm prevented our seeing the object for which we were directing our course. We all became saturated with the driving rain and hail, and our clothing and robes were frozen stiff. Still, we kept moving, as we knew it would be certain death to pause on our weary course. The wind swept with irresistible violence across the desert prairie, and we could see no shelter to protect us from the freezing blast. Eventually, we came to a large hole or gully from 18 to 20 feet deep, which had been made by the action of water. Into this place we all huddled and were greatly protected from the wind. Being exhausted with our exertions, We wrapped ourselves as well as we could in our frozen robes and lay down. How long we lay there, I could form no idea. When I attempted to stir, it required the exercise of all my strength to free myself from the mass of snow that had fallen upon me while asleep. I saw that if we tarried there, it would be inevitable death to us all and it was still storming furiously. I aroused my second-in-command, named A Heap of Dogs, and told him that we must arouse ourselves and bestir our warriors, or we should all perish. No, said he, it is too painful. Let us stay here and all die together. I told him that I should go at all risk, and made a spring thereupon, he laying himself down again i had not proceeded much more than three hundred yards when i came upon a gulch or dry creek in which was a drift pile composed of a large accumulation of dry wood i made an opening and crawled in then striking fire i got it well burning and returned to my perishing warriors to relate my discovery they arose and shook off the loose snow from their robes and essayed to proceed but many of them were so weak and stiffened that they could but crawl along after getting thawed and comfortably warmed before a blazing fire i found there were two of our party missing i returned with two or three others to search for them and we had to dig away the snow to arrive at them but the vital spark had fled They were stiff in death. We stayed by our fire, which increased in body and warmth for two days, by which time the storm having subsided, we returned home. The relatives of the lost warriors made a great mourning for them, while the friends of those who returned with me showered presents and blessings upon me for having been instrumental in saving their kinsmen's lives. It was a time of intense cold. Our whole party were more or less frostbitten. My face and ears were severely frozen and were sore for a long time. The wild buffalo approached so near to our fire that we could shoot them without stirring from our seats. As an excuse for my ill success, I informed the crows that the wrath of the great spirit was not yet appeased. Soon after this catastrophe, I informed my people that I wished to wander solitary for a space to mourn for my two warriors who had perished in the snow. My real intention was to get to the fort and thus have a respite from the unceasing crying and howling that was kept up throughout the village. On making my intention known, two white men named Mildred and Cross, who were staying in our village, desired to accompany me. We started accordingly, taking one squaw with us as servant. On our second day out, we were surprised by a party of 250 black feet. We took shelter in a thicket of willows, resolved to make a brave stand and sell our lives for all they were worth. The squaw showed herself a valuable auxiliary by taking good care of our horses six in number, and building us a little fort of sand, behind which we stood in great security, watching our enemies as they ever and anon made their appearance. We were thus invested for thirty-six hours. The Indians hovering about, and losing one of their number at every discharge without daring to rush in upon us, which, had they ventured upon would have proved our inevitable destruction. We were situated so close to the river that we could be supplied with water at all times by the squaw without incurring danger. The second night, our besiegers, having wearied of their exertions, gave us comparative repose. Availing ourselves of the law, we muffled our horses' feet with our capots, Cut to pieces for the purpose, and stealing gently down the slope of the bank, we forded the shallow stream and made the best of our way home. We went whooping and galloping at full speed into the village, displaying nineteen scalps on various parts of our horses. Our victorious return created the most thrilling sensation throughout the village. Every face was washed. The scalp dance was performed, the first time for two months, and the hilarity was universally indulged in. The great spirit's wrath was appeased, the tide had turned in favor of the crows, and a continuation of victory was predicted from this brilliant achievement. End of chapter 19